Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Stelco is looking to merge and acquire new opportunities to expand its company. The Ontario government is proposing changes to prevent illegal soil dumping, and also the Ontario government is looking at raising speed limits along the 400 series highways. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the other stories we've been talking about over the last couple of days is, uh, well, first of all, in a broader sense, the steel industry, and more specifically about what's happening here in Hamilton. And uh, just as we were talking about, well, the federal government's decision, of course, to uh, lift some of the protections uh, that uh, have been in place for the last little while uh, for the steel industry, uh, we get word today that Stelco is actually wanting to merge and acquire new opportunities to expand its company. That's uh, rather startling for some people that are watching the steel industry. Let's ask our guest. Marvin Ryder is with us here from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, thanks for coming in today. Good to see you again. Glad to be here, Bill. Uh, we can talk about the protection stuff in a couple of minutes, because, but I want, let's talk about this. Uh, as, as precarious as the steel industry seems to be and as precarious as Stelco's history in the last four or five years has been, are you surprised that they're in expansion mode? Well, I'm going to say yes. You know, I, I have to take you back to the, the summer of 2017. It was on June 30th that Stelco emerged from creditor protection with a new owner, Bedrock Industries, and led by Alan Kestenbaum and, and David Cheney. And, um, you know, this was a company that obviously spent nearly three years in bankruptcy protection. It's not the healthiest company in the world. Now it emerged without a lot of liabilities. And Mr. Kestenbaum is known as a miracle worker. And by God, he worked his magic. Uh, in the most recent quarter, for instance, uh, sales have remained strong, nearly a half a billion dollars in, in revenue. Uh, volumes have remained strong. Hasn't hurt that the price of steel was also better than it was a year ago. So everything was in his favor. And they made a note to say that they've ended the most recent quarter that was on March 31st bill with uh, no debt no significant debt they have cash and they have liquidity and then in their press release this magical sentence that came out that said Mr. Kestenbaum is uh, investigating merger and acquisition opportunities uh, to add to the company and I would not be surprised if before this year is out less than two years after this company was in bankruptcy protection they may announce the acquisition of something this is Mr. Kestenbaum's modus operandi. In other words, he, he gets into an industry, he buys a company as a base, gets it good and healthy, and then he starts out and adding more pieces to it to grow it over a 10 to 15 year period, and then he sells it. And by God, he's working his miracle again. Now, if I was a steel worker in Hamilton or in some other parts of this country, the company I would love to hear uh, Mr. Kestenbaum being interested in is Algoma up in the Sioux. Algoma, too, has been in creditor protection. It's just recently emerged, but it's not not the healthiest of companies. And uh, I think there'd be a whole lot of Canadian steel workers who would cheer if Mr. Kestenbaum bought it. I, on the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if Mr. Kestenbaum would be in the market for some kind of an American company, because then suddenly he might have a way to ship Canadian steel to American companies that could process it and then turn it into American steel and get around all those tariffs that Mr. Trump has put out there. But it's really quite amazing that less than two years after being in bankruptcy protection, Stelco not only is a healthy company, but is on the road to buy some more. Well, especially because of the speculation that you and I talked about during those dark days with the company. And even when Bedrock moved in here and took it over, the speculation then was, okay, he's going to get it healthy, he's going to sell it. Now he's getting it healthy and he wants to expand it. Yeah, well, keep in mind that Bedrock, Mr. Kestenbaum has a long history in the American business community, but Bedrock itself was only formed in February of 2017. So here's a company that on paper had only existed for three or four months. 
And unfortunately, we saw this once before. So the, the previous time that Stelco went through bankruptcy protection, it emerged and it was owned by, by companies like Appaloosa Capital and what have yeah. you. And they made the announcement, I remember in The Spectator, oh no, we're here for the long haul, we're here for the long haul. But I looked at their track record and they tended to flip companies within three years. And sure enough, within three years, they flipped the company to U.S. Steel, made their profit and went away. So this was the concern. We just didn't know anything about Mr. Kestenbaum and Mr. Cheney, the two principals. Um, but they have proven to be very solid people so far, and they do seem to be here on that 10 to 15-year horizon. What do they like about this company? That uh, I mean, obviously they bought it at a bargain basement price. We get that. But there, there seems to be an affinity here uh, with, with what he's done here. Well, the biggest part of it, Bill, was that he was able, through the bankruptcy protection process, and say what you will about it, and I understand there's lots of people who don't, don't care for Canada's bankruptcy protection process, but he was able to, during that process, eliminate almost all the liabilities of the company. And I would love to buy a century-old company that doesn't have liabilities. Specifically, he was able to unload three liabilities that had been millstones around Stelco's next, the neck. The first one was the pension liability. That actually still hasn't gone away. The pension uh, of Stelco retirees is still somewhat underfunded, but he put some money into it. They were going to sell land. That would put money into it. But in other words, he didn't have to worry about it. It wasn't mm -hmm. going to be his responsibility. The new, under his rule, today the pension is what's called a defined contribution pension, meaning he, again, will never have any liabilities. He gives you his matching amount, and you invest it. And if you don't invest it, well, it's your problem. It's not my problem. Second thing he unloaded was the environmental liabilities. So we know that Stelco had operated on that property in the North End for over a century, and we just know there are hot spots that have heavy metals and other things. Well, the Ontario government came along and absolved them of responsibility and said, we'll We'll take that on. We'll take the responsibility. If you find bad things, we'll help you clean them up. Great. And then, of course, the third thing the creditor protection was able to do was eliminate all the financial liabilities. U.S. Steel, for good or bad, had loaded up the company with some debt, and all of that debt got written off. So what Mr. Cheney was able to buy was a, a strong operating company without those three millstones, and he's been able to take it forward. But one of the criticisms, and this is going back to the days when they were in CCAA, was that this is this was an, a, a mill that was out of touch with the with the, the industry at the time? <clears throat> Excuse me, compared it to ArcelorMittal to Fasco, who were cutting edge. Yep. Stelco was making stuff that they weren't even sure if they could market anymore. So even if they do come out of CCAA, I, we don't know if they're even going to last very long. Well, this turnaround here has been amazing in light of that. Yeah, and I mean, just take one more thing in there was that U.S. Steel had had basically shut down all the selling operation and yeah. did all the selling through Pittsburgh. So when you say, okay, now you get to have your own company but you've got to start your own selling department. You have to have new contacts, what have you. Would they be able to sell steel? Uh, the one thing I would say is that I think Mr. Cheney correctly realized that in buying Stelco, he was not just buying the Hamilton Works, the, what we know as the Hilton site, but he was buying Nanticoke. And Nanticoke is still a crown jewel. It's a very modern facility. It makes steel very efficiently. Strong workforce there, good work ethic, what have you. And so he had that strong base. Now, the dream here in Hamilton... So they would restart the blast furnace. Yeah. And um, 
Mr. Cheney and Mr. Mr. Kestenbaum, bless their hearts, have kept infrastructure there and these big smokestacks, what have you, that could, could allow them to go that way. Nothing in their most recent report that says they're on the verge of restarting that blast furnace. That's the, we parsed them all looking for those magical words. In fact, the only good news we saw in a way was that down at the Nanticoke facility, they're going to get into cogeneration where they generate their own electricity using some of the waste products of the steel business. And uh, that could save them $20 million a year. That sounds like a great thing, environmentally friendly on one hand and saves you money on the other. How can you complain about that? But that's really the holy grail here for Hamilton. Will he restart the blast furnace? If he makes an acquisition, he might not need to, but I think all of those options are on the table today. Was uh, I guess we're doing this in hindsight now, looking in the rear, <coughs> excuse me, in the rearview mirror. But when he uh, came back and said, look, I want to keep all this land. It's not surplus land anymore. I know the city was pretty upset about that. But was that an indicator uh, that, that he was here for the long haul and that he saw a future for this company? I'll say yes. Certainly what he was trying to do and still is trying to do is keep all of his options open. In this most recent quarter's press release, which was for March 31st, uh, noted that they did have a deal to sell a building or lease a building to someone who was going to do some work down there. And so he's figured out that he can maybe generate some revenue from it. Uh, I, I think he just likes to keep his options open. Uh, Mr. Kessenbaum, uh, heaven forbid he takes up professional poker. He, he'd be a very good <laughs> poker player. He likes to keep his cards close to the chest. But on the other hand, he likes to keep a full deck of cards in front of him, meaning if he wants to zig to the left or zig to the right, those things are available. And I think keeping the land, keeping the infrastructure, keeping his options open, keeping in mind as well, Bill, that you don't just run a steel company for the situation in 2019. You have to be thinking two years, four years, six years down the road. I say that to you because, of course, the other elephant in the room, so to speak, is Mr. Trump. Yep. And, of course, yep. he made steelmaking more difficult by putting these 232 tariffs on Canadian steel and Canadian aluminum just a, not quite a year ago. It was in June of last year. But Mr. Trump won't be in office forever, uh, even if he's reelected. He still won't be in office forever. And, and the thinking is cooler heads will prevail and those tariffs are going to go away, maybe sooner, maybe later. And then the, the environment changes again. So he's got to be able to roll with those punches, however they play out. You mentioned uh, Algoma as a potential partner in, in this whole situation. Uh, that's a marriage that's been talked about over the last couple of Has years. Been. It's been talked a lot, especially by the unions, uh, the Steelworkers Union, because they felt that... Uh, and let me again take you back to something like 2015, 2016. The feeling was that U.S. Steel, the master here in Hamilton, didn't understand what they had, wasn't running the plant efficiently. And the feeling was the same up in the Sioux with Algoma, that their masters, the people who ran that company, just were not getting the biggest value out of it. And Mr. Kastenbaum, given his history in the American metals market, uh, was seen as a bit of a white knight. And I know there were workers in both places, both in Hamilton and in the Sioux, praying that Bedrock, and Bedrock did actually kick the tires up at Algoma. They filed some papers so they could take a look, and ultimately they decided that it was the Hamilton operations and Hamilton and Nanticoke operations that they wanted. But they did kick the tires, and, and even, again, Mr. Kestenbaum and Mr. Cheney haven't actually ruled it out. They just said, well, we found our focal point here in Hamilton, so for the moment we're just going to focus here. But 
I swear to God that anything is quite possible with this gentleman. If he sees value, he finds a way to release it and, and make some money out of it. Uh, he is an American, of course, and uh, you mentioned that he may be looking south of the border for this uh, this partnership or this expansion, whatever it is going to be. Uh, what's the state of the industry? I mean, we know about Pittsburgh and U.S. Steel, mm-hmm. and, uh, but are, is there a, a smaller company that he could, he could pick off in a circumstance like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, Bill, I don't claim to know it like the back of my hand, yeah. but there are uh, big chains, big companies out there. There are big Russian, big Indian, big Chinese firms, big American firms, but there's also lots of smaller ones, and it really depends upon what he does. He, he's known as, another term I could use for you is the word flanker. He doesn't like to attack the industry head-on, down the middle with everybody else. He likes to pick and choose little areas around the edges that he can compete in. Uh, and, and certainly there would be companies, the American market, uh, even though there is some investment in new capacity, is over capacity. It's only operating at about 80% of capacity. Its fortunes also was buoyed last year when the price of steel shot up to nearly $1,000 a ton. But right now it's come down to more like $820 a ton. So, you know, good times for a few months. And now it's getting back to normal times. And there might be a company available out there. Remember again that his name, though it means very little to you and I and the average Hamiltonian, carries weight in the American metals market in a way that I, I suppose a, a Steve Jobs carried with Apple computers mm. or a Bill Gates with Microsoft. He's whispered about in those same kinds of tones. What about this plant here? What about the uh, the, the, the operation here in Hamilton? Uh, is there any chance of expansion there, uh, make new job opportunities, anything like that? Uh, this is a healthy company now. Um, uh, <laughs> so I have to hedge my bets. Uh, Oh, a little Bill, crystal ball game. Well, yeah. What they've got right now in Hamilton is what I'll call finishing. They have the zinc line. They have a, a cold rolled mill, what have you. And that basically takes product made in Nanticoke and finishes it. Now, obviously, if he can get more sales, and they are interested in getting sales. In fact, in this most recent quarter, he noted they had just signed a contract with an American auto manufacturer, named not disclosed, so I can't tell you how big or small it was. But that's great news. That's sure. getting back into the big markets. Uh, so, th- yes, there could be marginally more jobs, but the one that the holy grail jobs would be restarting that blast furnace. And unfortunately, there's nothing in the most recent quarter that hints that that's imminent that's going to happen soon. So would I be surprised to hear that they're adding 50, 60 jobs here in Hamilton? Not in the least. Maybe even 100 jobs as they run another shift or add some more capacity. But at the moment, the big thing, which could see 1,000 people hired, which would be restarting the blast furnace, there's just no sign of that on the horizon at the moment. He doesn't strike me as the sort of guy who's going to take this success and say, okay, now we can just go full bore here. He's, he's cautiously optimistic about this. Well, in particular, uh, and many of your listeners might appreciate this, he has a real aversion to debt. He doesn't like borrowing money, so he likes to self-finance things. The cogeneration project down at, at Nanticoke is a $20 million investment, and, and it should generate savings of $20 million a year. It's pretty easy to see how you can self-finance that without taking out much of a bank loan. To restart the blast furnace, you know, we're, we're talking tens of millions of dollars. And although this is a healthier company and it is sitting on nearly a quarter billion dollars of cash, I don't know if he'd want to divert that much away at the moment. But we'll see. And as that war chest gets built up, it will give him, again, more options to see where he wants to go. Good news for Stelco. Marvin, thanks so much for coming in. Great to have you here Glad again. to be here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about another thing that's happening uh, from Queen's Park, and uh, it's in response to a story that we brought to you a couple of days ago. Uh, Councillor Lloyd Ferguson joined us, 
and was telling about the uh, number of complaints that he was receiving uh, from people in the Flamborough area about illegal dumping. And, of well, this is really essentially dirt from construction sites, uh, most likely from Toronto, is what Councillor Ferguson told us. And uh, he was hoping to get some action from the province on this. Well, the province has responded. Uh, Donna Skelly, the MPP for Flamborough, Glanbrook, and Parliamentary Assistant to the Ministry of Economic Development, Job Creation, and Trade, who represents that area, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Donna, thanks for joining us. Good to have you back on the show today. Oh, it's always great to be on your show, Bill. Donna, talk to us a little bit. Uh, Lloyd Ferguson told us about the the, the feedback he was getting from residents. Uh, what are you hearing about this situation? Well, I, I mean, I've known about this for years. In fact, the first time I ran back in 2011, uh, residents raised it and said they were concerned about what was coming into uh, this particular piece of property in Troy, but it's not just at that site. This is really uh, an issue that's, that takes place in rural areas of Ontario right across the province, but at this particular site, there were truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of soil being dumped on site. And uh, as you've probably seen in the uh, news in Hamilton recently, um, there's a, a bit of controversy, let's just call it that, around ownership and, and who's running this particular site. But regardless, the, there, there are a number of farms that are adjacent to the property, and they were quite concerned about potential contamination in their water table. It's not new. As I said, it's, it's an issue that has been ongoing for years and years and years. Yeah, I, I've just mentioned the other day that, I mean, I, I can remember talking to former Councillor Robert Pursuta about this, and this mm-hmm. is a long, long time ago. And I, I assumed, since we hadn't heard a lot about it in the re- re- recent past anyway, that maybe something had been done about it, but clearly not. No, and in fact, if you see the site, there are mounds of, you know, of soil, 10, I'd say 10, 5, 10 meters high, and people aren't, we just don't know what's at site. So after I was elected, I met with the, the constituents in the area. They raised this again. They are very, very concerned. Of course, the issue has escalated to the point where there was residue uh, they were concerned of coming off the trucks. They say claimed, uh, they claimed that it, it caused accidents because it was uh, making the roads in the area slippery. Uh, traffic was holding up, um, or the trucks were holding up local traffic. They were concerned that there would be an accident, and then uh, there were uh, allegations of threats being made. So it was, it was really getting heated. Uh, the Minister of the Environment met, we brought him to Hamilton and met with the stakeholders, the homeowners, I should suggest, um, back in the fall. And we started working on this, what can we do? And when you look at the legislation or the previous legislation, the current legislation, it had no teeth. It really didn't. And enforcement is also a big issue. But there was really no way of going after and, and tracking and identifying and preventing what is being dumped at sites like this across Ontario. So the minister and staff um, began working on something, and then uh, these same homeowners met with two other ministers, Minister Clark, and, uh, who is with Housing and Municipal Affairs, and then also Minister uh, Urich, who is with Transportation. And uh, so this week, uh, the legislation was, in fact, it was yesterday, was introduced, it'll be introduced in the legislature today, but um, uh, it was um, publicly announced, and it is a significant change and will give the government, the Minister of the Environment, the opportunity to track the movement of this excess soil. There is a lot of development going on in the GTHA, 
and rural Ontario is having to or ends up taking this excess soil. And in many cases, they don't know how much they're getting and they don't know what's in it. Well, that's that's the problem. I mean, it's not just that mm-hmm. this is happening. Uh, when we were talking with Councillor Ferguson about this a couple of days ago, uh, he said, well, having been in the construction industry for years, he says basically in the industry they call this, they call this clean fill. And he says that's a bit of a misnomer. You don't know what's in this stuff. Absolutely. So this new legislation has, uh, and of course we still have to go through a public process, a 30-day public consultation process, but it will create a registry and anyone who is associated with the movement of that soil will have to be part of this process. The developer will have to test the soil and then post online the quality and quantity and destination of the soil before it can be moved. Then, uh, once that's posted, the truck driver will have an app in his vehicle, and he will also have to post that the soil he is moving is uh, the quality and quantity and where he or she is taking it. The recipient of the soil will then have to post that they've received that soil, this is the quantity, and this is the quality. And at any point in the process, if someone contravenes the, the rules, they are facing upwards of a $200,000 fine per unit. And if it's a truck driver, they can lose their license. Because what we're seeing in Ontario and in parts of Ontario that border Quebec, a lot of the Quebec drivers are just coming over and dumping and leaving. We can seize their, their uh, license plate. So talk to us a little bit about, as you've done some research on this, Donna, uh, who are these people that are doing it? And I guess just as importantly, who are the people that are receiving this dirt? I understand this is a pretty lucrative business, for those people anyway. Well, it is. Uh, again, I, um, I have not, uh, I don't have any documentation. I can repeat what I have seen in the media, but there are... Um, allegations that well, you saw. Yeah, people. you saw the story in uh, Steve Buse's story the other day in the Spectator. And, uh, and I give him a lot of credit for working on that story. I'll be surprised if he doesn't win an award on on something like that because it's 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 an eye opener on who was allegedly uh, behind this particular operation. But I can tell you, we're talking about hundreds of trucks a day. We're not talking about a truckload. On a Saturday, there could be two, three, four hundred trucks going to that site. And uh, some of the residents have told me that they have been threatened, that um, and they're afraid a lot. You know, we have farmers in the area who are seniors, who are very concerned about. They were really worried about, you know, vocalizing their concerns because they were concerned that they would be threatened or had been threatened. They were also quite concerned, and I saw it firsthand. Uh, actually, it was the last time I ran. I went over and I met with one of the farmers, and there was a residue coming from this site, they claim, allegedly, that was uh, had filtered and landed on their crop. And you cannot possibly farm in Ontario if you don't know what residue is coming from the business that your farm abuts. So the the players were, were questionable. There was a, a very... Um, uh, concerning past, if Steve Buse's articles are accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are allegations of organized crime, of fraud, and it's terrifying. I don't think it's an isolated incident. I'm not so sure that this isn't uh, being uh, replicated at other sites across Ontario. I can tell you that there are uh, truckloads 
of this excess soil being moved from the GTHA to other parts of Ontario and the farmers that are uh, surround these these um, dump sites are very, very concerned about what's going in because, of course, they're worried it could seep into the water table. So, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's an issue now that I think once this is passed, and we're hoping it will be passed, I'm hoping it will be passed in this sitting. Uh, that might be uh, a little aggressive, but I'm sure our government will do everything it can to get it done as quickly as possible. Well, that, that's, yeah, that's because th- this is timely, obviously, and it's, it's, yeah. it's great that you guys are moving as quickly as you can on that. But uh, you, as you mentioned, you've got to have an eye on the calendar here because you're going to break for your summer break, in the, uh, and you've got to follow process on this. But I'm sure the residents out there are saying, look, it's got to happen now. Yeah, I mean, and if you've been following our, our, our track record, they're pretty good at getting stuff uh, passed in a fairly timely manner. It is critical. It's concerning. It's, it's worrisome. And again, watered down gardens, this group of people were, uh, they just kept on it and they were very, cons- you know, they were, they were, they, they had the courage to come up and speak out. And thank goodness that they did because had they not, I don't believe that we would have changed this legislation because people would not have been, I don't think staff in the ministry were really aware of just how pronounced it is and how how um, difficult it had become for members of the community who were living next to these, these sites. So their activism and their advocacy uh, really has made a huge difference in terms of legislation protecting... Um, uh, rural communities as we move forward. Then, of course, we have to deal with the cleanup. If there is uh, anything that is questionable on that site, uh, there's a whole issue around policing now. If the police are going to go in and, and investigate, well, that, that's one of the that was one of the sore points that the uh, councillor mm-hmm. Ferguson brought up, and, and clearly, uh, it's something that the provinces are going to have to deal with, and that's enforcement. Uh, which uh, that includes things like staffing issues. You know, how often are they going to be there? Uh, uh, where's the uh, the inspection going to be, et cetera? I mean, I, I think based on what you've told us and 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 the research that you and others have done on this, uh, you can't do this on the merit system. Uh, you know, the, the no, no. But we have, in in all fairness, the when we first uh, got involved with this back in the fall, they were already out testing the soil. It was just coming in random tests. I know because I, I received the results of some of it and shared it with the community members. Now, the problem is when you take a random sample, uh, it doesn't necessarily reflect all of what's buried at the site. Sure. So, so far, there were no uh, red flags. Having said that, there were you know, um, many, 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 many more truckloads that have gone to that site. The other thing, the environmental enforcement is going to be a big issue. I spoke with the minister about that just before this interview this morning, and he said that's the next step, is making sure that we are enforcing the rules that we've put forward. But having... Um, stiff penalties are certainly going to be helpful for uh, for enforcement officers and also hopefully to act as a deterrent because if we can you know show that we're taking this very seriously which we are uh, hopefully people will think twice about it and uh, play by the rules we don't want to prevent people from moving forward with with development we just want them to play by the rules the other thing, of course, is if there is criminal activity, I think that, um, you know, that's up to uh, the municipal police force, but hopefully, you know, the, they will work with the residents who are very concerned about what has been happening at that particular site. Donna, we talked about the possibility here of contamination. You talked about it even on the crops, but is there any groundwater testing that's going on? Because a lot of these places, uh, these areas in that particular part near Troy, uh, are, are working on wells, and obviously what goes into the leaches into the ground could have an impact on the drinking water. I, Bill, I'm going to say I believe there has been, again, in the last 
six and seven months um, bef- before Christmas, they are, there were officers on site uh, testing soil, and I believe that that was an area as well that they were talking about because there is a creek as well that runs in the back of the property. Mm-hmm. So that had been addressed, I believe, by uh, officers, uh, environmental officers. Again, it has to be an ongoing process, though, because um, we don't know what's on site and we don't know what has been moved to that site since uh, since the, the, the water and the ground was tested. You have to remember there was no tracking. There is no tracking system in place right now. So this is, this is new. It's done elsewhere, but it has never been introduced in Ontario, and it's long overdue. It really is. I mean, the fact that we have so much construction going on, I mean, in Toronto, there are cranes everywhere. You can't move and you don't see another development for a condo. And, of course, when you're building a condominium, you're going down four and five stories. That land has to be moved. That soil has to be taken somewhere. And this is what's happening is, is these uh, rural communities in the surrounding areas is taking it, whether they want it or not. Now, Waterdown Gardens has a gate and uh, is known to accept soil, but there are also other farms, again, across, across the province that are, or I should say, um, pieces of land that are also taking this, this soil, and nobody knows about it. So we have to have something in place, and I believe that this new legislation will address that, that can stop trucks and say, where are you taking this? What's in it and how much are you moving? And if they don't have, if they have not registered, they could be uh, fined up to $200,000 and lose, as I said, lose their plate. So that piece of legislation has teeth in it now. There is finally going to be a registry where we can track all of this excess soil. If we want development, we have to ensure that our environment is protected. <clears throat> Excuse me. We also have to, as you said, make sure that we have officers in place who are enforcing the law, or it's all for naught. Donna, thanks so much for this. Uh, here's hoping that we can get this thing done before you guys break for the summer. Uh, it's obviously important, and, and we should reiterate once again, I know we've talked about the, the specifics going around here around Waterdown Gardens and, and related areas, but this is a province-wide situation, and the legislation is going to capture all of that. In fact, it actually is taking place at other sites in Flamborough. So, yes, you're very right. This is going on uh, at Waterdown Gardens and right across the province. Donna, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. We'll stay in touch as uh, this unfolds and makes its way through the process at Queen's Park. Anytime. Take care. Take care. Donna Skelly, MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Driving around the province uh, in the next little while could look a lot different uh, if the Ontario Ministry of Transportation has their way. Uh, the minister, Jeff Yurick, uh, is uh, talking about doing a couple of different things. It's pretty much a given, I guess, that uh, first of all, they're going to allow motorcycles uh, in the HOV lanes, uh, which is something a lot of other jurisdictions are doing. Uh, there's also the possibility of raising the speed limit. Now, this is not the first time that the issue has come up, obviously. Other governments have decided to leave things the way they are. Uh, there are some people that are opposed to this. You heard on CHML News earlier today, the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police uh, have some serious concerns about this. But there are others who are advocating for this and saying, look, this should have been done a long time ago. Let's uh, get in on the discussion here. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Chris Klimek, who is uh, with Stop100.ca. Chris, thank you for joining us. Great to have you on the show today. Uh, Good morning, Bill. Your thoughts about uh, what the minister is talking about doing now, about raising the speed limit? Uh, I'm assuming probably from 100 on this is the 400 series highways, 100 probably to about 120. Uh, I would hope that, that that is the case because that would be a, a, a proper number. Uh, another proper number would actually be 130 as well. And, and we're not just making this up. We're not just coming up with random numbers here. Uh, 
we're actually talking about what's called the 85th, 85th percentile, which means we're looking at the scientific method of, of setting speed limits. And uh, when you look at the data, and the data is what are the drivers currently driving at, the data is showing us that the average speeds or the 85th percentile speeds are between 119 and 126 on most of the rural stretches of the, uh, of the uh, provincial highways. So the numbers that the government should be looking at are between 120 and 130. Why haven't they done this in the past? I understand this is a new government, but this is not the first time this issue has come up, and previous governments have always said, no, we're just going to maintain the status quo. Uh, that is a great question. I mean, that is a question that you should be asking them, I'm assuming, when you have the <laughs> minister on the phone. But, uh, you know, we've been advocating for this since 2011. We've been bringing facts, you know, different experiences from different jurisdictions. So we've been asking them to, uh, you know, to consult every single government, you know, conservative government, uh, liberal government. Actually, 2011, that would be just the liberal government. But we've been talking to this government as well. And uh, you know what? There is, uh, as you said, there is many opposition groups which actually do not look at the data, do not look at the facts. So I'm assuming the governments are just bowing down to the opposition groups like the OPP and like uh, Ontario Safety Leagues and, and a couple other. However, I've actually seen coverage yesterday in Ontario Safety League seems to be on board all of a sudden. Oh, yeah? They've always been opposed to it. They overall, Brian Patterson, this is a gentleman from the Ontario Safety League, he said yesterday, you know what, doesn't matter if it's 100, 110, or 120. This is his exact quote. So they're actually open to even 120, which totally shocks me, but I'm very happy about it. Well, the, the, the statement we heard from the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, they're opposed to this, obviously. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, and their rationale, I guess, among many different reasons for it, is that they say the high percentage of collisions that occur on the 400 series highways, uh, speed is usually a factor in that. So they think it's going to make a bad situation worse. How do you respond to that? Right. So, so the number I've seen floating around is, is from the LPP is, is 20% of all the crashes or even higher are, are due to speed, which is completely incorrect. We have the data from uh, from the Minister of Transportation, which is actually carried, goes back to 10 years ago or even further uh, and we look at the statistics. These are the statistics from the MTO. And what the statistics are telling us, that speed-related crashes over the speed limit, so that excessive speed, uh, is only attributed to about 6% of all the fatal crashes. So the reason they're using the number 15 or 20 or 25% is, is because what they do oftentimes is they, they conflate, they, they combine this excessive speed statistics with the uh, speed for condition. So condition means, you know, whether it's weather, you know, snow-related or rain-related. So, for example, the speed limit could be 100. Somebody could be doing 80 kilometers an hour in the snow when they should have been doing 60, right? Which mm-hmm. means that has nothing to do with the speed limit. If that crash takes place, that number goes into this, you know, speed for condition statistics. So, so OPP is probably combining those numbers, which is completely misleading because, again, somebody was doing 80. They were actually below the speed limit, but, you know, they should have been doing 60. So the actual number from the MTO, just so the listeners know, is about 6% is attributed to, uh, to speeding. And even that's sort of, uh, you know, overstated, I would say, because if the speed limit is low, as you can imagine, if the speed limit is 100, then you can say that anybody, even doing 105, is technically crashing due to speed, right? Because they're already exceeding the speed limit by 5 kilometers an hour, which mm-hmm. we kind of know it's nonsense, because 105 is not an unsafe speed. The, the Here's another argument. I, I, I'm glad you were able to join us today because I want to put these out here on the table because this has come up in the past and we've asked listeners to respond to this. And, and, and one of the other arguments is, look, at if you make it 120, you're really making it 140 because people are just going to go faster than the speed limit anyway. Mm-hmm. So, again, once, what we do is uh, we, we base all of the arguments that we bring to the table 
on data, on experiences from different jurisdictions. So I can point you to at least 10 different jurisdictions which have raised speed limits. And I'm not even talking about Europe. Let's even leave Europe alone. Let's just focus on North America, right? Sure. Although Europe would be a perfect example, too. Uh, so BC, for example, four years ago, they raised speed limits. The NDP government uh, just a year ago tried to reduce all of them because they were kind of opposed to it from the beginning. They looked at the data on the Coquihalla Highway, the, uh, which is their major superhighway in BC. They couldn't actually reduce the speed limits on that highway because they looked at the speeds before and after, and they've noticed a very small difference in actual 85th percentile speeds. So even the NDP government, which was very, very, very much hoping to roll, the, roll back the speed limits from 120 back to 110, they couldn't do it. They left a bunch of stretches the way they were uh, at 120, which is the higher limit. Utah is another example. Uh, Michigan uh, recently raised the limit to uh, 120 as well, 75 miles an hour. So I can point you to a bunch of jurisdictions which have done it. And uh, on average, if you raise the speed limit by 10 kilometers an hour, you may see a, an actual uh, 85th percentile speed difference by about 2 kilometers an hour, or sometimes it actually goes down. I'm just, you know, you related to our experiences here in Ontario. And uh, I, I know the, the one stretch of highway I used to drive an awful lot when our daughter was going to, to university in London, Ontario. Uh, that stretch of the 400, from really from Brantford all the way down to uh, to London. If you're not doing 120, you're holding traffic up. I mean, everybody's doing 120, not just in the left-hand lane. And that and that that's a pretty straight road, and I guess people feel pretty comfortable on it. But I think it underscores your point that if the road conditions are perfect and everything, the the, the people are already exceeding the speed limit, and nobody seems to do anything about it. Exactly. Look, people are driving at the speeds that they find comfortable. Nobody on the road has a death wish. Nobody right now, unless they're drunk or completely inattentive, they're on the phone. And I, I told completely I, I agree with it. Inattentiveness is number one cause of crashes. Okay, And drunk driving would be the second one. Uh, doing 120, 130 in a straight line on a you know, dry stretch of road is not unsafe. This should not be illegal. So nobody really has a death wish. So nobody will be all of a sudden doing 160 or 170 just because they were, you know, the government raised the speed limit. If you're not feeling safe doing those kind of speeds, doing 140, you're not going to be doing 140. So 120, 130 have been decided around the world. There's 60 jurisdictions, 60, 60 jurisdictions around the world are posting 120, 130, which is exactly what you're seeing when you're driving. You know, safe behavior should not be illegal. That's our main argument. If I'm doing 110, if you're doing 120, if somebody's doing 125, those are considered by science and by global experiences to be safe speeds. Why should something safe be illegal? That's our main argument. Besides, people, I, I think, as you mentioned, unless you know, there's something else going on, if there's an impairment, uh, then obviously that, that's the issue there. It's not, about, it's not about the speed of the vehicle at all. It's the person behind the wheel that's, that's obviously going to be the concern here in situations like that. But we tend to, to back off anyway. Uh, as you used the example earlier about you know, bad weather, snowstorms or something like that, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't see people doing 110, 120 on those highways if, when they're snow-covered because obviously they don't want to be the ones that are going to get into some sort of a collision. So we, we I guess, do a pretty good job of policing ourselves, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the basic human nature. As I said, unless somebody is on their phone or they're drunk, they cannot control their actions. Other than that, you want to reach from A to B. You know, you left your work, you want to reach your home, you want to reach your, you know, your wife, your significant other, your children. Nobody has a death wish. So there's very few cases where people will be doing 200 kilometers an hour, okay? which, you know what, they always do. I mean, no matter what the speed limit, if somebody wants to do 200, they won't care if the sign says 110 or 120, right? So what we're saying is, right now, virtually 100% of drivers are exceeding the speed limit. I would imagine most of your listeners would agree with that. Or let's make the number 99%. So here's what's happening. When 99% of the drivers are exceeding the speed limit, because the speed limit is so low, 
you're tying up police resources. So the police cannot be focusing on the drivers they should be focusing on. Because when they're looking at a highway with a wrong speed limit, 99% of the drivers ahead of them, right, being targeted by the, by the laser gun, are going to be exceeding the, the, the speed limit, 105, 110, 115, 120, 130. So the police officer has basically so much fish to fish that it just makes his job impossible. Now imagine if the speed limit is set at a, at a correct level, 120, 130. Then you're going to have only 15% of people exceeding that number. That means the police officer will be able to focus and target just the 15% of drivers, 1-5, just the 15% of drivers. So it's going to be so much easier for him to pick out the dangerous drivers, the inattentive drivers, and the drunk drivers, because he can ignore all the other traffic that seems to be flowing at the regular legal speed. And, and that traffic flow is a key part of this. I remember doing an interview a couple of years ago with, a, well, he was an ex-police officer, uh, but he did traffic control, obviously, while he was on the police services. Uh, and he said basically the, the rationale he always used is how is the flow of traffic. And in other words, if you're impeding traffic, then you're a problem. If you're going too fast, uh, much faster than the, the, most of the traffic, then you're a problem. But if everybody's going at the same pace and everybody's you know keeping their distance, uh, he said 110, 120, no big deal. This is exactly why we talk about the 85th percentile. And again, this is not something we invented. This is from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. So they study those things. They, they design highways, and then they recommend posting of speed limits. The problem is, you know, political pressures are actually kind of, you know, you know, meddling into this kind of stuff. So oftentimes what the IT is recommending, the, the proper speed limit setting, met- setting uh, methodology are being ignored or they're being reduced unnaturally by 10, 20 kilometers an hour, like has been the case in Ontario. But what the speed limit setting methodology is saying is when you have a speed limit posted at the 85th percentile, which would be 12130, you end up producing a uniform traffic flow, which means most of the drivers will be between 12130, which means there's going to be less interactions, less passing, right? There's going to be less people doing less than 120, right? Which is then, you know, potentially causing a significant situation. If you have one car doing 100 and a bunch of traffic, you know, most of the traffic doing 130, then that's where the collision may potentially come from because this gentleman or lady doing 130, or sorry, doing 100 will be passed all the time by hundreds of thousands of drivers every hour, right? If you have doing somebody 160, then that person is also uh, on the upper end of the safe, right, of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the curve here, which means unsafe situation. So you need to be posting a speed limit where the drivers will be able to comply with, and you focus on the slowest speeds and the highest speeds to enforce those. When, when this uh, does happen, and the, the minister's already said he's going to do public consultation, so there, there's a process here that's going to have to be followed. But is is there a concern here that, uh, that well, uh, some people are going to say, well, look at all the speed limits should be raised. You know, that, that highway over there where I'm only allowed to do 80, I want to be able to do 100 on that. Uh, or do we simply limit this to the 400 series? So it would be a great start to just do the 400 series because uh, uh, those are the safest roads known to uh, to men. So uh, 400 series highways are divided highways. They have a you know, concrete divider or grass divider. So these are recognized globally as the safest highways. So that's obviously the most natural uh, place to start. The, uh, the fatality rate is, is about three times lower than on the undivided highways, which are the 80-kilometer highways. However, that would be the second step, which I totally agree with. Uh, the 80-kilometer-an-hour uh, highways are also underposted. They were actually posted at 90 uh, about 40 years ago. So they, they also reduced them to 80, which they shouldn't have done. Uh, most traffic on those roads, we've looked at the data, they do between 90 and 100 kilometers an hour on the current 80 zones, which are the rural undivided highways. So absolutely, we would be recommending that the government looks at that as well. Um, it's going to be harder for them to do it because those roads inherently have a much higher fatality rate, usually about three times higher. 
for a very simple reason. You can have a head-on collision, right, because there's no divider. However, if you look at the 85th percentile speeds, um, setting a proper speed limit would prevent you from, from one, uh, you know, significant uh, uh, situation that occurs on them all the time from passing. Because if you have somebody doing 80 and you want to go 95, which would be a speed that you feel comfortable doing, you're going to have to pass that vehicle. Passing is where you're exposing yourself to a head-on collision, right? So governments around Europe have actually raised those speed limits from 80 to 90 and from a 90 to 100. Uh, most of the countries in Europe are actually posting those roads at 90 to 100 to prevent passing because then most of the traffic, is, again, is uniformly flowing at 95, 100, and nobody has to go into the opposing lane to risk a head-on collision. And, and that seems to be the, the, the strong characterization of, of those kinds of highways. I mean, we, again, we, as I've heard anecdotally, or even when we're driving up north in the summertime, uh, the, 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 the collisions or near collisions that, that I've seen over the years have usually been somebody who's, who's driving erratically. In other words, you know, passing when there's a double yellow line or, th- you know, there's a hill up above. And it could be any number of things like that. In other words, that's unsafe driving. That's not really related to the speed limit. Right. However, the speed limit is actually vastly contributing to it oftentimes or actually increasing the number of people passing. So, for example, you can be a very safe driver. And as I said, if there's somebody doing 81 in front of you and you want to do 90, well, you're forced to pass. So, so even safe drivers such as yourself or myself, the, uh, or, or, or again, 99% of the drivers, I'm assuming, out there based on statistics. Because, by the way, just one statistic, statistic I want to throw at you. We have some of the safest roads in North America. So, so even though we know nobody's driving 100 in the 100 zones, people are doing mostly 120, 130, we actually do have some of the safest highways. So, so there's no reason to punish us anymore with, with keeping the low speed limit. But back to my other point, the, uh, we are going to be forced to pass when there's a low speed limit. So the speed limit is actually affecting even the safe drivers as well, because those are the drivers that are going to be exposed to this, to this dangerous passing maneuver. But you're right. The aggressive drivers are the ones that the, the ones that the police should be looking out for, which means, you know, set the limit, limit properly so you can focus only on those cases where the danger is increased, right? So we can be driving at 90 or 100 in, you know, the current 80 zone, and not have to risk, you know, obtaining a ticket or getting demerit points. And the police officer can only focus on the unsafe, inattentive, and drunk driving or drunk drivers. The uh, public consultation, as we say, is, is probably going to be in the next little while. Uh, they're going to get some positive response. There are going to be some people that are opposed to this. We already talked about the chiefs of police. I'm sure, I don't mad, I think, in the past has been opposed to this. I'm not sure what their position would be with this latest uh, attempt to get this done. But it sounds like you've already got your presentation ready. Uh, I've met with the OPP uh, several years ago. Uh, I can't <laughs> say that it was successful. However, I do have a message to the OPP if they're listening. The, uh, ask yourself one question. Who is happy to see an OPP cruiser when they're driving on a highway right now? Who is happy? Show me one driver who says, oh, I'm glad this officer is standing on the side of the road. Right? Most of us are slamming our brakes, causing unsafe situations because we are afraid of getting caught. Why are we afraid of getting caught? Because the speed limit is posted such that we are breaking the law by doing nothing unsafe. So I have a message to the OPP. Turn that cruiser that's sitting on the side of the road into the friend of the drivers. So when I'm seeing the cruiser, I'm saying, yes, you know, I want to see that cruiser because you know what? Maybe that guy is going to catch this left lane bandit that's blocking the left lane. Maybe that cruiser is going to catch a drunk driver that's maybe coming up behind me, right? I'm not a target because I'm doing 125 and I'm doing it legally. So I'm a happy driver, I'm applauding the OPP, I'm glad the officer is on the road. Right now, the OPP are seen as the enemies of the drivers. Who is out there happy that the cruiser is actually doing 
speed enforcement. Nobody, because we're all afraid of getting a ticket for something we shouldn't be afraid of. So that's my simple message to the OPP. Become our friends. Focus on the left lane um, uh, discipline. Focus on the left lane banditry enforcement, uh, which is, by the way, part of, supposed to be part of this new bill. And become our friends. Stop being our enemies. So don't advocate against it. Support us. Allow us to drive legally and become our friends once again so we can be happy to see you on the side of the road. Chris Klimak with Stop100.ca. If you go to that webpage, obviously, you'll get a lot more information about some of the stuff that uh, Chris has been talking about here. Uh, thank you so much for this, Chris. It's uh, really in the hands of the province now, so we'll see how they roll or don't roll on this. But uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch again in the next couple of weeks. Thank you so much, Bill, for the time. Thank Take you. care. Click Klimak from Stop100.ca. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.